When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, Melanie Linsky is mad as hell and she's not going to take it anymore. And Matt and I review the new Netflix original movie, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And in honor of I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, We were really going to get in the mood of this movie, really embrace it, almost do like a cosplay thing. We were just going to break each other's fingers, start puking everywhere. But with the state of health insurance the way it is now, that just seemed like an unnecessary risk to take. Who knows what the future holds? Who knows? Seriously. Within the next few hours. Do you know? I don't know. Please tell us if you do. (laughs) So instead, in honor of Melanie Linsky's character in the film, we're going to talk about movies featuring amateur detectives. Amateur detectives is our subject on this episode. But first, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Allison, it is your turn to give us the picks. What do you have for us this time? Well, first up, I've got another of the big Oscar movies. It is Fences, Mm. now available on demand. This would be Denzel Washington's adaptation of the August Wilson Pulitzer Prize-winning play. In addition to directing, Washington stars in the role alongside Viola Davis, with whom he shares uh, Tony Awards for having played these roles on Broadway previously. You've got uh, a great cast. Otherwise, Stephen Henderson, Russell Hornsby, McKelty Williamson, among others. Uh, netted a lot of Oscar nominations, including Best Actor for Washington and Best Supporting Actress for Davis, who won. Uh, And, you know, I think you really can't get more prestigious than an August Wilson play being brought to the screen by Denzel Washington. And I think that Definitely, the performances in here are are what you watch this for. I know we go back and forth. We have had a disagreement about the directing of this movie, but I, I don't think you can argue about the performances. Certainly not Davis, who just like, just like is searing really in in this role. She's incredible. I so, really like this movie. Yeah, and I like the direction. So it's Fences that is now available on demand. Also now available on demand is Allied. This kind of slightly overlooked uh, movie. It's kind of a spy thriller, but it's also a romantic thriller. Directed by Robert Zemeckis, uh, written by Stephen Knight, starring Brad Pitt as a Canadian. 
intelligence. Really officer. stretching his brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love how excited you are. A Canadian. A Canadian. It's so. It's like. Uh, I don't know. He usually plays such an all-American character. I guess that's true. There's a little bit of a twist. Was there anything remotely Canadian about his performance, though? And I say this having liked the movie. But also, let's be fair. If someone were to really signal themselves as Canadian, that's usually for the point of a joke. Yeah, Yeah. that wouldn't have worked in this film. Anyway, please continue. Uh, Actually, his French gets derided as being very Quebec Quebec accented. You're right. You're right. Uh, Marion Cotillard, as a French resistance fighter... And it's a movie that starts off in this, like, grandly romantic, exciting, you know, in Casablanca. Yeah, it's like Casablanca. Yeah, and, uh, and there's, like, a point where they shoot up a room in evening wear. And then it goes into this second half, which is kind of, in which these, like, two outsized characters basically need to shrink themselves down into domestic life. Right. And also figure out if one of them has been lying about something. Mm -hmm. And it is, I think, while an imperfect movie is a gorgeous one, and it really just plays into just, uh, you know, Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard as old-fashioned looking, you know, movie stars. And and it also, I think... Uh, and with like a kind of meta context is is a fascinating accidental uh, bookmark of the end point of the Pitt Jolie marriage, as this feels sometimes like a kind of reverse Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes, you know, in which instead of these two married couple, like these grand spies who are married, uh, keeping these secrets from each other and assassins, these are people who know have seen each other in this like outsized right. situation, who then have to kind of try and fit into domestic life yeah it's an interesting observation that it's like the other end of the bell curve or something yeah <laughs> right. i totally see it return to, to normalcy sort yes of. um so that is allied that is also on demand and finally uh it coming to on demand on march 17th is a movie i haven't seen yet but i'm really looking forward to in part because it features a role from the late great bill paxton it is mean dreams a canadian coming-of-age thriller, uh, directed by Nathan Morlando. And uh, it's about two teenagers who fall in love uh, despite the protests of the the father of one of them, who's played by Bill Paxton, and who is a police sergeant who is corrupt and uh, steals a bunch of money that the teenagers take and go on the lam. So it's kind of a coming-of-age slash chase movie. Uh, mean Dreams, that is available on demand on March 17th. My house got robbed. What did they take? My grandma's silver. Uh, Did you call the authorities? Yeah. The world is bigger than your silverware. Grow up. The main review on every episode of Film Spotting SVU is determined by listeners through a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. On our last episode, the options were I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which premiered at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival before making its way to Netflix just a few weeks ago. The Girl with All the Gifts, a British zombie movie that both Allison and I are big fans of. 
and Captain Fantastic, with Viggo Mortensen giving an Oscar-nominated performance as the father of an eclectic family. And we had a landslide this time with I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore running away with it with 52% of all the votes cast. That was more than the other two options combined. So why are people so interested to hear about this movie? Well, for one thing, it did just premiere with a fair amount of hype at the Sundance Film Festival. It got very good reviews there. It also won the Grand Jury Prize there. It is the directorial debut of Macon Blair, who in recent years has become a bit of a indie darling, thanks to his performances in the Jeremy Saulnier films Blue Ruin and Green Room. And it was also the only option in the poll from Netflix. Sometimes that does affect things. We are aware of that. And the film does have a really good performance from Melanie Linsky as Ruth, who plays, uh, she's a nursing assistant. She basically snaps after her house is broken into and her computer and grandmother's old family silver is stolen. And when the police don't pursue the case, Ruth decides to follow the clues on her own and reclaim her possessions with the help of an eccentric neighbor played by Elijah Wood. So, Allison, there is plenty we can talk about here, including the amateur detective storyline, which is our theme on this episode. But I think I want to start with this. Our listeners were obviously very enthusiastic about this movie. They overwhelmingly wanted to hear us talk about it. So my question for you is, do you share their enthusiasm for I Don't Feel at Home in This World anymore? I do. I think it's a really fun movie. And I think as someone who's a fan of Jeremy Saulnier, who directed Green Room and Blue Ruin and Murder Party, all of which have featured Megan Blair in some role, sometimes a starring role. I feel like this movie is a, is definitely an extension of that style that Saulnier has embraced. They're not exactly the same, but I think that in particular, these the I don't feel at home in this world anymore has something that I really enjoy, which is that it thinks about what violence looks like when committed by people who have never really committed a lot of violence. The, that is actually the central joke of one of these characters, uh, who is um, Tony, Elijah Wood's character, very convinced he is a martial arts expert. And yet you, it's very clear that he has had not had a lot of chances to actually try this out practically. Uh, I, I think that as this film goes along and kind of becomes an action movie, that there's a lot that they, it stages its action in ways that almost feel like physical comedy, except totally brutal. And I, I really enjoy that because I think it's, it's in some ways like the opposite of choreographed movie action, though it's clearly was very carefully thought out. You know, the idea that it's just sloppy and filled with accidents and people getting hurt way worse than anyone intended. So I, I do enjoy that. But I also enjoy it as a portrait of of loneliness and isolation that never, that allows that to just creep in around the edges. You know, this is a character who is clearly depressed and feeling like at loose ends and feeling like she has no significant connections and is mourning the family member whose house she's living in. And I think that this creates a portrait of that really well without leaning too hard into all of the signals of that. But what about you, Matt? I'm sensing you do not like this as much. Uh, I was not as enthusiastic. I liked it. I was not as enthusiastic as as you were. I think the thing that I didn't like as much was it 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 felt to me almost like um, Melanie Linsky was 
kind of in a different movie than a lot of the other characters. Like, I thought she was amazing. Her character was great, very well written, beautifully performed, and a very real, down-to-earth, relatable character who just sort of fashions herself as a good person and is just sort of suffering silently, watching just the little life's, like, kind of little indignities and the, the little things that when, you know, you try not to do those things, like, when you see people doing them and then the world just keeps, like in her case, like literally pooping on her because there's not on her, but on her on lawns and such. There's this, that's how she meets Elijah Wood is his dog is taking a, a crap and not, and Elijah Wood is not cleaning up after it. That, I don't know that there is something very relatable about that character or just very real. And the way she plays it is so subtle and naturalistic. And, and then you sort of partner her with Elijah Wood, which just, he seemed very cartoonish to me. He seemed... He's very Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I also thought almost, or like a like a, a bad kind of Coen Brothers ripoff. Not Coen Brothers, but someone who wants to make a Coen Brothers movie and is going for sort of that broad, kind of almost like Raising Arizona thing. And so I didn't, I loved her and I wasn't crazy about him and I just felt like, um, those characters, they didn't mesh well to me. And I didn't really feel like their journey together felt fully real or fully realized. Like, you put them together, but then not a ton really happens. There's not a lot of ups and downs in that relationship. They just kind of wander around through the movie. So I, to me, it was, I, I, overall, I liked it, and I thought she was incredible. And I did sort of like the way that she kind of falls into this crazy world of crime. And, and what you're saying about the violence is all true. And I thought, I think Macon Blair, and this is his first film as a director, I think he's got a lot of talent visually, which surprised me. I thought the, the camera placement in this movie was excellent. I thought the editing was excellent. The use of editing as, and camera placement to, to, to make very dark jokes. Excellent. Like, clearly has a lot of potential in that realm. I, 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 thought, I thought that sort of the balancing of the tones and some of the performances was not kind of on par with the technical side, which surprised me because I think Macon Blair's a great actor, and I've loved his performances in, like, Blue Ruin, which is one of my favorite films of the last couple of years. It just didn't seem like those performances were, like, modulated to fit together. And maybe that was the point, obviously, that they're kind of an oil and, and water comedy team. It just didn't work for me, though, if that was the case. Yeah, I didn't mind their partnership. I do agree that at first he comes across as a bit cartoonish. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, actually, definitely I have met someone who is basically him. Like, really? I have, yes, I have met someone who is very, very similar. With the rat tail and everything? Long hair in this case. Just okay. like waist, um, waist-length man hair. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, divided in the center. All right. I, you know, I don't think that... I, I mean, he's he is. I think maybe you're, it's also easy to be more aware of it because you're like it's Elijah Wood, and I know what he actually looks like, and it's very there's something a little self conscious about him mm. playing this kooky character. But I didn't. I actually found some pathos in him. I particularly mm. liked the fact that his character is Christian, and that when it first seems like a punchline because he's this heavy metal listening guy with a lot of rage issues, mm. that like when he prays before they go into this house. Uh, it, it seems like a punchline, but it, I think the the movie is pretty sincere in its treatment of his faith, and mm-hmm. and that, and I don't think that movies in general throw in characters who are who have faith without turning it into either a joke 
or a sign of hypocrisy. Right. Or so I like, especially in this kind of movie. Right. So I like that it was just like a sincere element of his life. Yeah. Um, but I just, I don't know. I think also like the moment when she goes to his house the first time and she's a total stranger to him or the second time. And is like, I need backup. And he's like, okay. <laughs> like he has been waiting his whole life for someone to come around and be like, right. I need backup. Right. You know, I think that there's something in, I, I mean, in a way, these are two characters who both have this inner code of what they consider kind of like good and moral behavior. And they feel the world is failing it. Right. And that's part of the reason that they have the sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that did match up well in the end. But mm-hmm. what did you think? You you didn't like some of, or you felt like the, some of the other characters were more cartoonish as well? Yeah, a little bit. I, I just, it does seem a little, I mean, I think that's, I do agree that that, I, or at least can see that that's sort of part of the point is that she kind of slips down this rabbit hole into this strange world. Um, and some of them I enjoyed. I, it was really more Elijah Wood's character that I felt stuck out more because he has so much screen time and, you know, there's supposed to be almost like, you know, like a lethal weapon style buddy cop team in a way. And I just didn't really feel like there was a ton of payoff to that relationship. You're right that they have that those sort of commonalities between them and they and they have some nice moments. But I overall, it just it, they just didn't fit to me like and there and it didn't and like you were saying there are some uh, surprising things about him i suppose but it's not like he appears to be one person in the beginning of the movie and we really get a totally different like over the course of the movie we see these other sides or he gets to reveal a lot of stuff about himself not really not not that i thought anyway right but he is a foil to her in that moment when as much as it's played as a joke to be like don't take the lawn tiger you know don't take it that like that she in her journey of self-righteousness also oversteps you know well that was one of the things that i i liked the best about the movie actually was that idea which i think is it was really sharp and well done was that she comes from this place of sort of moral certitude and believes that she is a good person and feels totally justified in trying to at least reclaim her stuff and and i think we would all agree that she is but that there is this almost like corrupting nature to like you might call it justice or you might just call it revenge or just having a psychotic episode. Who knows? But the way that suddenly she becomes like just she loses her way and she suddenly starts taking things. And right. I thought that was perfect. I thought that totally fit the journey that her character was on. But I think it also goes to speak to the fact that for a lot of people, inclu- like all of us, especially the Internet, that like self-righteousness is often a way we have of justifying what we want anyway. Right. You know, or, and acting, so like, or acting bad yourself. Exactly. Yes. So at the moment when she's angry and she's just out of spite, takes this lawn tiger that she does not want. Doesn't want, doesn't, doesn't need, need, doesn't yes. deserve. That she takes it as an act of revenge. She still, in her mind, is like, self- deserves this. Right. Like, you know, self-righteously. I, don't, I think what, what I, I do like about, even like as it gets into, you know, I think these like more outsized characters, like Christine Woods as this bored, resentful housewife in this this kind of hideous McMansion. Yeah. Uh, that she actually, like Melanie Linsky's character has no end game in mind. You know, she is just angry and she wants, and this gives her this sense of direction, right? Like this can afford motion in this drifting life. She doesn't actually have like a good, like this is the thing I want. I want my stuff back and also... 
She wants someone to say I'm sorry to her. Right. And no one is ever going to say that. Not these people, no. certainly. She picked the wrong people to look for an apology from. That's for that's for darn sure. Yeah, I actually like Christine Wood's character. I mean, she's she's very well played, I thought. And um, you know, the fact that uh, you know, the scene where they come in, they're suppo- they're trying to pre- they're pretending to be cops and they're obviously not cops when she lets them in and you sort of assume, oh, she's very dumb. But of course she knows she's on to the game the whole time, but she's, as you said, she's just bored and she needs, she needs, she's like, needs someone to talk to. She seems a little high on something. Maybe, perhaps, <laughs> yes. perhaps. So I actually, I thought, I thought that was a very nice scene. And again, like, I really liked the way this, the movie is is shot kind of impressed me because I'm sure they didn't have a lot of money, Netflix or otherwise, you know, like I, this was not made expensively. And I thought it showed a lot of kind of very small, but very effective visual flair, like scenes where, you know, she comes home and there's that long, not the hallway, fl- the hallway. Yeah. Yes. And go like we, and you pan across where the guy is watching outside and pan out and you just go down the hallway and we sense him lurking and we're waiting to see what happens. And then you come back and he's the, the, you know, where he was is empty. And then there's a cut to a shot and then he appears. It's like, I guess it's not groundbreaking stuff, but it shows a guy who's paid a lot of attention to the way movies are constructed and understands how they work and is able to use that stuff to his advantage, even in a low budget movie, I thought was very sharp. And even, you know, towards the end of the movie, there's a chase scene. And I thought, again, the way that that was cut together, shot, there's some very nice shots of Melanie Linsky sort of running and there's like a handheld camera that's sort of right next to her, right almost shooting up at her as she's kind of stumbling through the woods that I thought these are very nice shots. Not super flashy, but very well shot. There's even an early scene after her house has been robbed when she goes home and is sitting at home in her living room and the camera pulls back, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of like leaves her in this larger and larger frame. And it's such a neat shorthand for... The sudden fear she feels in and this how space. How small she's yeah, been made. That she doesn't. To she feel. doesn't feel secure in this home of hers, and mm-hmm. or in the world. In anymore. the world anymore. Yeah, I. You know, I. I do think it's like a. It's a kind of. A little lopsided movie, and it's a little ragged. But I, I think that it's I, a first film. It does yes. feel to me like a first film. It does feel like a first film. But I, I really. But it feels like a promising first yeah, film. To I did. Me. I really enjoyed it. I really, and I, I think even. Like the most outsized characters of them all, in a way, are the the trio of of drug addict thieves that are this makeshift family mm. that become the antagonists of the movie. I, and I think that even then, I, I I like that that sets up this like bit of rhyme in terms of families of choice versus families that you have. You know, I think when you see this kind of ridiculous, like the ridiculous rich person's house and his bodyguard and his like wife who kind of hates him yeah and then and even uh to to melanie linsky and elijah wood and this kind of you know this relationship they have which is not really romantic and not uh, but kind of like closer than friendship and you know this partnership i think that uh, it was neat to have this like dark side version set up you know where Mm. these these three people are kind of like in this family where they care about each other a lot but are also these like weirdly like funny nightmarish figures living out in the woods. Yeah. That's an interesting <clears throat> observation I didn't really think about, but I can see what you're saying. Uh, we haven't really talked that much about Melanie Linsky. I feel like as we wrap up, we should at least say a little bit more about her just because she is so phenomenal in most things yes. that I see. And I just, it's it was great too that to get to see her 
playing a lead role, which is not that common, and also just like an un, you know this unusual like an lead role. Action movie, yeah. Role like she bit. gets to sort of become an action hero, or <laughs> I mean, sometimes there there she does she does some action esque things. Uh, there's also I mean, some it ends with like a big showdown. That's true. She <laughs> sort of has a very heroic moment towards the end, but sort of right before that is this wonderful punchline, which I guess we shouldn't spoil yeah. if you haven't seen it. But it's sort of like the moment when the real sort of when the poop hits the fan. Her reaction is very – it's perfect, and it's really funny. It's probably the best moment in the movie, I yeah, would say. Yeah, I do like that. And I also, I, it's I do, just great. I do like that there's also a point where she carries, like literally like bridal-style carries Elijah Wood's character. <laughs> and I just – like that's just – it was such a great, like wonderful visual, right. you know? I, I just I, – I wanted – like watching this movie, I was like, I actually, I would love anything more with her either as a detective or as like an action heroine because yeah. I think – both i she's so wonderful in general and so kind of present in this character who who transmits so much of her feeling especially in the this the opening montage in like just her annoyance and small things yeah just small those, ways. like the little sighs this or long the long suffering yeah yeah, yeah the, just the look on her face when someone cuts her off in the grocery store like she has one item and the person in front of her has 20 uh-huh. like that moment we've all been there and just the way that she makes us feel that is just so great and but then she also does have like that monologue about her grandmother in the beginning of the the movie that i thought was very touching too yeah. and just beautifully you know beautifully played she is She's great. Uh, I was. It's great to see her get a big role. I hope. I hope it's. It's not the last one we see from her in, for a while. Yeah, I. I want infinite Netflix Sundance winning <laughs> Melanie Linsky movies. How about that? Yeah. Okay. I'm on board with that too. All right. So that's. I don't feel at home in this world anymore, and it is available right now on Netflix. All right, so let's talk about some other amateur detectives of the silver screen. Allison, anything you want to say generally before we get to our picks? Well, we didn't even mention, but in I, uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, Melanie Linsky does try some really funny, uh, like I read an Encyclopedia Brown book <laughs> kind of style uh, <laughs> detecting, including she makes, like this is like right out of like my kid's like book out of like make a like, fake mustache and all of that. She makes a plaster cast of a footprint. I like that scene. Yeah. That, that like fun. The, Then, of course, the actual detective she brings it to is like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> she did a good job. She could she see did, that, there was, there was, could, that the, the shoe was taped. She right. could see from the cast. And it makes sense. She's a nurse's assistant. She probably works with making stuff with plaster of Paris, right? Isn't sure. that how you make casts? Sure. I thought it was a. I thought it made perfect sense for that character. I and I thought the detective's reaction was also, also perfect. Also made perfect sense. Yes. yes. And it was really funny. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I have like, it's almost infinite patience for amateur detective stories i don't know why i like them too even on tv where is like like i would say 
Sometimes it feels oh, like no. 75% of the shows on television yes. are about this premise. Yes. I can watch almost any of them. I was You mentioned Encyclopedia Brown already. I was one of my favorite series of books as a kid, even more than like, you know, the Nancy Drews and the Hardy Boys and all those. I loved Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah. I don't know why, but I, I, I loved those. Yes. Something about that always appealed to me. And you're right. As an adult, I still enjoy a lot of it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them. If, when you suggested this subject, I was like, are there really enough? And then you're like, well, there's this, this, this. this. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's like a million of them. It's yeah. like one of the most popular <laughs> unspecified genres in the world. There's millions of these. Um, and I think we can talk about the reasons why in some of our picks. I know that I was, as I was looking back at my picks and, and thinking about them, it definitely made me think about why these movies are so popular and why we like to watch them. So maybe we can talk about that more as we get through our picks. You want to go first? Sure, I'll All go right. first. What's your first pick? Okay, my first pick is a movie that is on Crackle, mm. which we don't mention very often. Crackle. It is Devil in the Blue Dress. Mm. This is a 1995 film directed by Carl Franklin, starring Denzel Washington as Easy Rollins. Easy Rollins is the main character in a series of Walter Mosley mysteries, and he does become a private eye. But in Devil in the Blue Dress, which is the first of the series, and unfortunately did not launch a corresponding film series, it did not do well enough, Easy is not a private eye yet. He is just a guy living in Los Angeles in 1948 in desperate need of a job after he's laid off from his gig at an aeronautical company. He's a guy who needs to pay his mortgage. And he's smart and he's black, which is the main reason he gets hired by uh, a stranger played by Tom Sizemore. If you needed any signal that he was going to turn out to be trouble <laughs> as part of the uh, he's part of this community. He can go places that the stranger can't. Uh, and the stranger is searching for a white woman named Daphne Monet, who was eventually we'll find played by Jennifer Beals, who's been known to frequent black nightclubs. Um, and the story that the film kind of unfolds is, like any good noir, basically too complicated to understand or keep track of. Um, but what makes this movie so solid, and I think really underrated, uh, is that it isn't just a neo-noir variation on Chandler, because the same rules do not apply to Easy Rollins as to Philip Marlowe. You know, for one thing, when the cops pick up Easy Rollins and mess with him, as happens in almost every P.I. plot... The threat that they'll just kill him is huge. Uh, you know, and Easy is an amateur in part because he just can't be accorded the same rights and privileges. He won't be accorded them. When he goes to see someone in this hotel, uh, for instance, she's staying in the white portion uh, and he has to be snuck in. You know, um, Race actually is an important element to this whole very, very complex conspiracy that's drug up. Uh, uh, there's the mayoral race, but also like ra the race of a person. Uh, and uh, there is also the murder of someone easy new, which makes this all personal. But he is in no position to set the world right. He never thinks he is going to. And I think what's what's one of the things that I really like about Devil in the Blue Dress, um, for all that its title suggests is about this femme fatale, is that it's really just a love story between a man and his house. You know, Easy is a property owner and and is very proud of it. Takes like a deep satisfaction in being able to have bought this house. And the movie makes clear that he managed something that even with the help of the GI Bill, a lot of other returning black soldiers didn't. And like, it kind of makes these kind of quiet mentions of like redlining and, uh, and also just like of this, this neighborhood that he loves so much, you know, Denzel Washington is really, I think 
close to peak handsomeness in this movie. He really just looks extraordinarily beautiful. Uh, but his signature look in this is not like in, in the kind of vintage suit. It's actually him in the suit pants and then uh, an undershirt mm. when he is like sitting on his porch, right. just enjoying his house and the neighborhood. And just like he does this a few times. And it's something that is, it is very endearing, you know, that it's not that he... He he is not this like badass private eye who can like, you know, doesn't care about anything. He really loves his house, um, and I I did want to mention beyond before I, I wrap this up that uh, you know Jennifer Beals uh, is often considered the weak point of this movie. And I agree, she doesn't fit into this. She just can't like fit into like a period role as well. It just feels. Uh, like an odd fit for her. Like she's not comfortable in the kind of look. But the person who is, who kind of steals the movie whenever he's on screen, Don Cheadle. Yeah, he plays a character named Mouse. Yep. And he is uh, totally a sociopath, but also friends of <laughs> of Easy. And he is such a good time. So uh, it's definitely, he in particular is worth a look. But I think it's this, you know, it's not a, it's not a great movie, but Devil in the Blue jo- Dress is a really nicely made one that is really enjoyable and i think a good basically like private eye origin story um so that's devil in the blue dress it is on crackle i'm pretty sure the uh, film spotting original recipe dudes are big big fans of devil in a blue dress i remember seeing it when it came out and liking it but i don't think i've seen it in 20 years now and i but it's i feels like it seems to have slowly accrued a bit of a cult or a larger fan base as, uh, you know, this great potential franchise that never happened, essentially, that we should have gotten more it's, more of those movies and they never happened. It's such a good happened. fit yeah. for Denzel Washington. Like, yeah. he... It's Is just, it too late? Kind of like, Could we have in the, the character a little bit older in does, new one? Yeah, I think the character, like... I'm pretty sure the, the book's series, the still book goes, going on. Right, and so. they kind of keep going through his life, so... Still time. It's not it's too still late. Time. Fingers, fingers crossed. Well, it's definitely too late for a sequel to my first pick, but that's fine. Um, as I was thinking about movies with uh, amateur detectives, it I was I I just started thinking: Are they less about the mystery than a movie involving a professional detective? Maybe, maybe not. But that led me to my first pick because it was the first movie I thought of when Allison suggested this topic. And it was also something I thought of because this is a movie I love, even though I knew the solution to the movie's mystery long before I ever saw it. It is The Third Man from director Carol Reed, and it is currently available on Netflix. It's one of the few older movies that are currently available on Netflix. And it is a movie that, for me, and I think for a lot of people who are seeing it for the first time, you know, these days or in the last 15, 20 years... um, it's a movie kind of like Psycho, where you've read the ending, you know the ending, you've seen it in documentaries, you know that twist long before you see the actual movie. But at least for this film, it, it doesn't, in my mind, it doesn't diminish it at all. Um, and I was trying to think about sort of why that was. The amateur detective is this writer of cheap novels whose name is Holly Martins. He's played by Joseph Cotton. He arrives in Vienna at the invitation of an old friend, Harry Lime. He hasn't seen him since before World War II. Uh, But when Holly arrives, uh, Harry has just been killed in a traffic accident. And so he's going to head home after the funeral, but then Holly accepts this invitation to give a lecture in Vienna. 
And while he's waiting to do that, he kind of starts meeting people. He meets friends of Harry's. He meets associates of his. And he starts to think that something fishy happened to his old buddy, Harry Lime. And the title refers to the third man who supposedly carried the dead body away from the accident. Holly finds the identities of two of these men very easily, but the third man is harder to track down. So here we have a, an amateur detective. He is the writer of of Pulp Fiction, basically, which almost suggests that this character has kind of fallen into his own work, or perhaps we are seeing like an adaptation of of a story that he hasn't written yet or something along those lines. Um, but there are certain things that elevate the movie beyond just being a B-crime movie. For one thing, Carol Reed and the crew shot the movie in Vienna, in post-World War II Vienna, amongst this, you know, real wreckage, real, just the actual, like, collateral damage of the war, which has this incredible texture to it that in the backdrop of this movie, which is often very light, there's kind of a, it's a comic at, at times, that it has this very authentic air of horror and tragedy, and it looks so incredibly noirish in this high-contrast black and white photography and there's this there's also the great score the music the zither music played by Anton Karras and I am not a professional zither expert much like our detectives here our amateur detectives I'm just an amateur zither expert but surely the theme from the third man it must be the most famous zither composition in history right <laughs> I can't think of I can't think of famous. any other thing more famous either and then of course you have Orson Welles as the well, let's say the pre-death Harry Lime, who has one of the all-time great scenes of his career with Joseph Cotton on this Ferris wheel, which includes a line that, looking at this scene again, uh, definitely st- stood out to me. The world doesn't make any heroes outside of your little stories. He takes a little pause before he says, outside of your little stories. And uh, the world doesn't make any heroes almost sounds like it could be an alternate title for I don't feel at home in this world anymore. I thought that was an interesting (laughs) resonance between those films. So it is a great movie. I've tried hard not to spoil it if you don't know the twist that I'm talking about. But uh, if you do know it and you haven't seen the movie, it is still worth checking out. One of the great post-war movies, an awesome amateur detective movie. Do watch it, and it is available on Netflix, and it looks pretty good, the version they have on there. At least to me, it looked looked pretty solid. That is The Third Man on Netflix. Okay, my next pick is a movie that is also filmed in black and white, uh, but it's one that was made in 1982. It is Wayne Wong's directorial debut, Chan is Missing. Uh, it's available for rents and is set in San Francisco's Chinatown, where it's amateur detectives, Joe, played by Wood Moy, and his nephew, Steve, played by Mark Hayashi, are actually two taxi drivers who've been renting a cab medallion and who recently tried to buy one of their own via a deal involving a friend of theirs, a more recent Chinese immigrant named Chan Hung, who, as promised, has gone missing, uh, along with their $4,000, pretty sizable chunk of change for two guys driving cabs. And so they go looking for him. Uh, often using techniques that any aspiring PIs might, including staking out the SRO where he's been living, tracking down the places he's worked, uh, and talking to the people he knew, including his estranged wife and his daughter. Uh, There's always this threat that maybe he ran off with the money, of course. That's something that Steve is more worried about than Joe. Joe 
really feels closer to Chan. But uh, there's also this idea that maybe Chan was involved in this murder that happened recently involving a disagreement between the supporters of the People's Republic of China, that would be like mainland China, and the Republic of China, which would be Taiwan, and over waving which flag during a parade. Um, but I, I think one of the things that really marks this movie is that while it follows the outlines of a mystery movie, and in fact, like references, it almost like is a parody of a Charlie Chan movie. They reference Charlie Chan sometimes, a kind of famous uh, detective uh, and kind of very conflicting figure uh, of an Asian character on screen. That uh, the more that Joe and Steve look, the the more this becomes uh, not a movie about where Chan went, uh, and more one about who he is. Um, it becomes this portrait of this kind of like contradictory portrait of Chinese America uh, about whether Chan failed to fit find a place for himself in America, whether he was just disinterested in it from the beginning. There's a question of whether they should go to the cops, whether it's the right thing to do, and also whether the cops would even be able to do anything with what Joe calls what would be like the third Chan in a day on the missing persons list. Um, and then there's the general question of like, basically, whether two Chinese people are friends in a crowd due simply to their shared identity, or whether everyone is just, uh, they're all just Americans in America, and don't owe each other any special consideration, uh, which is, I think, the kind of central question. As one might expect in an indie movie, it is not one that, this is not a movie that comes to a conclusion that is like a, you know, all questions are answered kind of thing. But it definitely, I think, has a really great ending. Uh, and, you know, Win Wang went on to make The Joy Luck Club. He went on to make Made in Manhattan and a bunch of other, uh, because of Winn-Dixie. He had a strange, uh, <laughs> has had a strange Hollywood career. One, one of these things is yeah. a lot less like the others. Um, so, uh, but I think that he, uh, this is like, in some ways still, this early, early film of his, it's like a very rough, low budget indie film, is one of the defining Asian American, like the defining Asian American film. Uh, and I think it's, it's a really complicated and funny one. And I love that it takes the form of a mystery. Um, so if that's one you haven't seen, and I don't think a lot of people have, because it's not at this point a very talked about title, it's available for rent for three bucks. You should do it. It is uh, a really fascinating uh, piece of film. All right. You sold me. That's one I haven't seen either. Uh, so I'm looking forward to watching it myself. I've always wanted to. All right. My next pick, I, I, I admit I am bending the rules slightly in terms of amateur detective. Because one of the detectives here technically is a retired detective. I don't know. He's retired. All right. How I'll, does it, I'll allow it. How, I'll does, allow how it. does that work, by the way? Do private eyes make so much money doing what they do that they can just, in like early middle ages, be like, ah, I'm retired? You know, I, I, I don't want to question the lives of the characters in this movie because yes. they're pretty fabulous. Ones. It's, it's a good point. It's probably best not to think about these things. So the, the man in question, the retired detective, is Nick Charles. And uh, he and his wife, Nora, are the pair of sleuths in The Thin Man. Uh, and there's, there's a whole series of sequels to The Thin Man, which I admit, I don't think I've ever seen any of the sequels. Allison, have you seen any of the sequels? I have not. There's like, after The Thin Man, there's before The Thin Man, The Thin Man gets a little, puts a little weight on. Mm. The Thin Man... Has, the, the funny thing is, again, like, The Third Man is sort of an elusive title. The Thin Man 
is uh, is a kind of an interesting title because everyone assumes that like oh it must be William Powell as the Thin Man. No, the one of the, the character he's looking for is the Thin Man, and then they just kept that title. In all, it's like the Pink Panther. The Pink Panther is named after a, a jewel that doesn't show up in some. Anyway, <laughs> back to the movie. So. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen any of the sequels, but I love the original film, which is available for rent, and I recommend you checking checking it out. I think even though technically he's a retired detective, I think in a lot of ways this fits a lot of the standards of the amateur detective movie. Because again, like the mystery here is almost superfluous. It's not about the mystery. What it's mostly about is the relationship and banter between Nick and Nora and their awesome dog, Asta. And really, if Nick has a profession, I think it's drinking, wouldn't you say? Isn't oh, that really absolutely. what he's a professional at? <laughs> and he does it so well. Yes, he does it with far more skill, or at least as much skill, and certainly as much passion <laughs> as he does solving uh, mysteries. And I was, you know, having seen this movie numerous times, I was reading a little about it. And some of the details of this seemed impossible to me. The movie was shot in two weeks. What? Which is crazy. Um, and apparently a lot of that, I mean, if you've seen the film or if you haven't seen the film, what a lot of what makes this movie so wonderful is that rapport between William Powell and Myrna Loy. They're just sort of their chemistry, their banter. And that some of that was shot on the very first take or the only take, or sometimes the director, W.S. Van Dyke, didn't tell them they were filming and would say, okay, let's do a rehearsal. And then when they were done rehearsing, he'd say, all right, we got it. Let's move on. And he was filming them without them knowing And it was just the best way he knew to get very relaxed, very intimate performances. And it's like, I guess I've heard of people doing that, but I don't know if it's ever worked better than it did in this movie. And again, thinking about the appeal of this subgenre, I guess, is that in this case, and in a lot of cases that I was thinking of, they make detective work look fun. Um, That in reality, like when you watch a movie about a private eye or certain movies about private eyes, especially ones from like the seventies and stuff, how tedious it is, how grim it can be. You know, you're following around, you know, I think about like Chinatown where you're just following around guys who are cheating on their wives or you're hunting for missing people that are probably dead or they're on drugs or it's just horrible things. They're not fantasies. And that amateur detective movies are these like indulgent fantasies where no mystery is too complex to be solved with one martini in your hand and an adorable dog at your side. And there can be a little danger and there is, you know, there's some suspense and danger in The Thin Man, especially in the ending. But it's about this escape or this like belief I think that people have that they're smarter um, than like a lot other people and that if given the chance only given the chance they could outwit criminals and perhaps even professional detectives you know in some ways even though I don't feel at home in this world is not really a fantasy in a lot of ways in some in that sense it is yes absolutely that the cops in this movie are just a bunch of boobs basically and just have no sense of anything and aren't concerned and don't care and that just by you know just with a little bit of pluck and luck that Melanie Lindsay's character can solve this mystery and uh, you know I I was trying to find a movie that I hadn't watched before for this podcast, and I didn't really find anything that I loved. I was sampling a few different older movies, and there's a lot of these from the 30s, which I thought was interesting, Um, including this series, Ellery Queen, who was this famous character from books. He got a bunch of B-movies. I watched a couple. You can find them online. They weren't anything special, but just something about that idea that in the Depression— 
that there was something very appealing about the idea, not just of being a detective, but being an amateur detective, of being so wealthy that you could spend your days doing this, not for to pay your bills, like, uh, you know, not to keep your house but just to do it for pleasure and to be doing it in these settings like in The Thin Man where everyone's wearing tuxes and gowns and it's high society and glamour. I don't know. It's ludicrous, but I guess that is part of what makes it so much fun. So that is The Thin Man. It is available for rent in a variety of places. If you've never seen it, it is wonderful. So we are lucky enough to be doing another giveaway, guys. Twice. Twice in a row. Such luxury. Uh, we have a Blu-ray, uh, three Blu-rays, in fact, of 20th Century Women, Mike Mills' acclaimed film. It's a god, you know, I don't know what. It was like in the awards conversation all year, even though it was like a slightly, uh, maybe not a perfect fit for an awards movie. It's kind of uh, more of an indie than that. But it's a movie that I liked a lot. I liked it a lot, too. Yeah. That Benning was robbed. Was, Didn't even uh, get a nomination. Uh, that was a, a, it was a crowded, crowded field for yeah. that. But it's got some really nice performances. It is a very warm and generous movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a very Californian movie in ways that I enjoyed. Um, so if you would like to own one of these three copies of 20th Century Woman on Blu-ray, we're going to do the same thing we did before. Mm-hmm. Send us a recommendation or leave us a review on iTunes. Yes. Leave us a review on iTunes first if you haven't yes, if you already. have not done that, please. That's, yes, that's please. what we want. We, you know, it's really, Selfishly. Yes, it's really, really helpful for us to increase... Uh, the podcast visibility on mm-hmm. the iTunes, you know, setup, and that's always helpful for us to get people mm-hmm. to pay attention and maybe try it out. So, yes, if you haven't left a review for us yet, please leave a review. If right. not, if you've already left one, send, send us, us a, a rec- recommendation. Yeah, send us a recommendation. We're kind of already we're cycling through some of the ones we got. We got a great array of yes, them we'll uh, last them. time, and it's been so nice to have them all. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, send us. Uh, and if you, it doesn't matter if you entered last time. You can enter again this time. That's right. Um, uh, so yeah, send it to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com and mention that this is for the, for the contest. Yeah, so either, like, te- yes. Yeah. And that headline and the subject 20th century. Yeah. So yeah. Blu-ray. Uh, either tell us, Hey, I left you a re- review or Hey, here's a recommendation for yes. the contest. Uh, I think us only for this cause it's gotta be shipped out by someone else. So uh, sorry, rest of the world, but you can still leave us a review on iTunes. <laughs> you can still leave us a review. We will still take your praise yes. and or backhanded compliments. Yes. So, 20th Century Women, you want to enter this contest? Yes, you do. But even if you don't win, you should know that 20th Century Women will be available on Blu-ray and on DVD on March 28th. So look for it then. All right, let's talk about some new movies in theaters before we get to behind the eight ball. We've got uh, a new movie that is currently out in release that we've both seen that we'll talk about. And then there's a very big movie. I read in the New York Times that supposedly it cost $300 million. Impossible. Evidently. Uh, which Allison has seen, but I have not seen yet. So she's going to give us the scoop on that. But before we get to that movie, which is Beauty and the Beast, of course, let's talk about Kong colon Skull Island. Were you a fan of Kong colon Skull Island? I thought it was fine. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, what for me was most interesting about it was what it didn't do, which is uh, the ways in which it tried to avoid all of the baggage that King Kong has had as this figure of like, 
you know, projected fears of black sexuality, this, you know, figure scooping up this white woman and running off with her, or in terms of like the ways the the tribe on Skull Island has always been treated as this like basically collection of like ideas of what uh, savage right. you know, people tucked away in right. t- uh, darkest whatever, um, wherever Skull Island is. Skull Island, be, like, darkest, darkest Skull, Skull Island, Island, I suppose. This skull-shaped island trapped in a permanent <laughs> storm. So, like, like the movie had to come up with also some ways to explain why no one had been to Skull right. Island in the seventies. Yes, there's a hurricane that's around the island. Never permanently. Goes away. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think the ways in which it steered clear of all of those and kind of and tried to and and to fix like its you know female leads damsel and distressness and all of that were interesting but i don't think that actually what it filled in after taking all of those things away was all that interesting it was kind of like a half-hearted idea about vietnam well, half-hearted apocalypse generous now. generous to call it half-hearted yeah and about the yeah uh, you know i think that it's also it has a cast that feels like they just wedged everyone possible Ugh. in to appeal to like every possible demographic they could, including the lead, one the female lead of the Great Wall, who is this Chinese actress who is just there to say like five pointless lines it's, and it's basically ridiculous. be on a poster. It's absolutely ridiculous. I don't understand why. I completely understand why you would put lots of different actors that appeal to lots of different people in the movie. But why? I'm presuming that in the Chinese cut of this movie that she has a bigger part. But I don't know. Qu- not necessarily. But <laughs> why put her in in this form where literally she shows up in like a briefing scene? We've had all these characters introduced like 20 minutes spent introducing there's literally like a dozen so main characters in this characters. movie and we learn we meet all of them and then we're like okay now we're going to skull island there's this briefing scene like here's what's going to happen and there's this one woman who's in this room and they're like nobody explains who she is she's just there they're she's like a she's, biologist they're like she's coming on the trip too yeah they say she's a biologist i think it's like, but the, it doesn't matter what? it doesn't matter she does nothing but in the same way and she's in I, the whole movie she's the whole movie i would feel worse about her except that also like toby kebbell no, there's lots of people it, wasted. Right. But is it in a, in a role that is so unnecessary also? And then you're just like, you could have excised him from this movie. Oh, completely. Most of the characters, Most of the characters could have been could removed. Just removed. They're all there. The thing is, it's a movie where there's a million people, I think largely so that King Kong has people to squish. Right. But there, a lot of them are such great actors that you're like, why did you get like John Goodman to be in this movie or Toby Kebbler? All these really good actors and then give them nothing to do. Nothing. I mean, you said they, you know, quote unquote, solving the damsel in distress issue. I'm not sure what they did here with the female character in the, in the form of Brie Larson really qualifies as a solution. I mean, it no, is different, but, well, I guess but it's awful. I mean. It's just, just a different kind of awful. It just like they, sub- I feel like this movie subtracted all of this stuff. They're like, well, we can't do this stuff. Right. Like we know we can't do that. Like, right. let's get rid of that. Yes. And then we're like, what do we do instead? Yeah, I mean, like she's a war photographer. No, she's an anti. She's an anti-war photographer, which makes absolutely no sense. Like nothing in this movie makes sense because this is like a top secret mission to this island no one's ever been to. That like the government wants to. I don't even know what do what. It doesn't matter. But but for some reason, (laughs) they invite this random anti-war photographer. I guess so that. If the mission goes badly, they can she can leak the photo. Like, why would you want this woman involved? Why are any of these people involved? I don't know. Here's here was my here was my feeling about this movie is that the um, the special effects and Kong himself were fantastic. I thought watching him on the big screen was a lot of fun. Like I would go see this movie. Like I would recommend people go see this as like a Saturday matinee. If there's matinee prices, if you can see this movie on a big screen for five bucks or whatever it is, that's the way to see it. 
the action I felt delivered. I thought the, the that much like the Godzilla movie, it is sort of tangentially related to, spun off from, leading to a sequel with. The only interesting character in this movie is the special effect. Sure. Is King Kong. Sure. I, I think that he is good. I don't actually think that a lot of the action is all that interesting. It really? I thought it was super in the fun. Same way, in the same way that I felt for a lot of movies, uh, it felt almost like the action for me was like pre-storyboarded out by like, uh, you know, uh, a motion graphics production house before the director ever got involved because it feels just so sim- like samey to me, including, did you ever see The Great Wall? No. No, I haven't seen The there Great Wall. There is a se- sequence in The Great Wall, which is also from Legendary. Right. That is in the mist and mm-hmm. the monsters there have been shot with like whistling arrows. So it's, okay. you can't see anything. And but then you suddenly hear you hear it? them come out. And then King Kong has, or Kong Skull Island, excuse me, uh, has a sequence in which one of the monsters swallows like a flash right. and is in the mist. And they're like, they can't see. And then like, you can see this like flashing thing there. And it was like, the concepts of these are so similar right. that I almost wondered if they had just like contracted with the same, like, <laughs> I guess that's possible. <laughs> like, I didn't see that movie. House. It was just like, I, I just, I, I thought that the way they did Kong, like, just like Kong's expressiveness was really good. I, you know, as someone who, thought that Godzilla was a great monster movie and a terrible movie about like I just like yeah. you wanted to just skip all of the parts in which human actors appeared. Yeah. Uh I didn't think that the action in Kong had the kind of greatness that it did. Like, oh, the, see that's the, exactly the how I would Godzilla feel about this one. I mean, I didn't see the Great Wall, so that scene I just enjoyed it. And like the furry the the, the big first scene with King Kong kind of destroying all these uh helicopters, I thought was fantastic. And I like the fact that this Kong is just like kind of a jerk he's just nasty he's just mean squishing people stomping on stuff it's just like but he's like supposed to be the good guy he's the defender of the island not not really not in this one i guess they sort of say he is but but they're like invaders and they're dropping bombs absolutely he's he's in the right to destroy them but he's not being nice about it he's just being why does he have to be nice as far as he knows he doesn't have to that's what i'm saying i liked about it like, I, I, guess I like that I he was squishing like he's them. He's never nice. Yeah, but in the other movies, he's always looking longingly. You know, he's like he's got a he's you know he wants romance, sure, right? And they don't. This movie's like no, we have no interest no, in that. No time I will say, for love. I will Dr. say Jones. the whole sort of Vietnam aspect of it. I just thought was um, like probably if this movie was like ten years older, someone would be writing and probably rightfully so. Like the like the angriest take about how this is the most just like trivializing and belittling this war because it just like doesn't even do it does nothing interesting with it at all it makes no sense and even the stuff where it's like oh okay it's like we're kind of doing apocalypse now it's like it i really genuinely felt like the movie was more adapted from the poster for apocalypse now than the movie like it like that shot of the sun they just the same shot of the sun is in in this movie like eight times yeah but yep. I mean, I did like the 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 you know the monster stuff. I thought was fun, yeah, was and John C. Riley was good. We haven't mentioned him. Yeah, I thought he was fun. very very good in this in uh, a role that I don't think he read a single line like from the script. I think he made up everything he said, and he was great. It's at entirely that. possible he yeah. is in his own movie, but it's a better movie. It's than a better movie else than everyone else. In. Yes. Okay. Very briefly here, it, it it's a tale as old as time. With songs as old as rhyme. Is that is that how it goes? I don't know. It's Beauty mm. and the Beast. Yeah. Uh, I will sing uh, the the theme song if we're not careful. So before I do, why don't you tell me because you've seen it? Was this uh, a, a good update? Did you enjoy? I greatly the film? disliked it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, I found it really depressing and just like oh, deeply no. cynical. It's just I, you know, like of all of the movies that Disney has, Disney has been like recycling its IP with great enthusiasm recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's been interesting to me that they started with. 
movies like uh, like Alice in Wonderland, which was like very revisionist, and uh, Maleficent, which is very revisionist, and it's, yes. they've slowly been sliding back into non-revisionist fare, True. like fairly straightforward adaptations. Yes. yes, and this is not even—it feels at times not even like an adaptation. It feels like the world's most expensive viral video <laughs> of like you'll never believe how the, how well these celebrities can reenact a Disney classic. Mm. Like I, you know, it, when you look at the clip, particularly of the the song bell where she's in town uh, yes. uh it feels like almost a, a spookily careful reenactment of like all of the staging and the looks and the rhythms and the visual beats and that is true for a lot of the movie in a way that i was just like i don't understand what is being like why are they doing this mm. you know it's like a it's like a, a corporation's ode to itself really mm. And I have no doubt it will make a ton of money because sure. people nostalgia is very people very love good. The original, yeah, the nostalgia is very very good business right now. But I, I what I found really frustrating about it is just that, I you know especially when you have a story that like Beauty and the Beast, I think especially when you cast real people in it, it kind of like it demands almost you think about what the story is about more than before. Mm-hmm. I, I I do think that like twenty six years later. Disney being like, well, we basically solved the problem about this being a story of a woman who falls in love with her captor, you know, like that instead of like figuring out any way to address that or like, you know, subvert that in some way, this is nothing. It it just sticks with a new story. I mean, what you get instead is a six with the old story or Disney's take on the story. What you get instead are um, extra backstory on what happened to Belle's mom. You're really curious about that, I bet, right? Who didn't sure. want to know what happened to Belle's mom? I've, I've been wondering for 26 years. Who didn't want to know if the Beast's parents were kind of mean? Oh, no. Like, <laughs> Daddy never loved me? Yeah. I just, I, I thought it was like the most like, it was, yeah, the most calculated move for me. As someone who like, has watched, who grew up watching, sure. we were in the age range. Of in which course. That it was first, that in the plastic wheelhouse. case VHS. Oh, yeah, the clamshell. Yeah, owned that oh, and yeah. watched it lo- like often enough that the VHS tape wore out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone who knows that movie really, really well. Right. I was just like, I didn't want to just see it recreated right. with real people and like very expensive uh, set designs. So my one question, and then we'll move on, yes. is just, you know, you're saying how, how much it is faithful to the movie the cartoon the cartoon was 84 minutes long this one is 129 minutes yep so is the 45 minutes of extra stuff just some of that backstory you're talking about backstory and then a few new songs that you will not a remember. few new songs okay you will not remember these new songs all right okay well i already have tickets to see it with my wife i'm uh, very curious to see whether i think that a lot of people will like it I, i've talked you to know, people who liked it i think that there are a lot of people who will enjoy it i just personally found it extremely cynical oh all right well let's get to behind the eight ball now on that depressing note where we count down some new releases on streaming we give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com and where we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists on netflix Allison, would you like me to go first since you just unburdened yes. yourself about, about the horrors of Beauty and the Disney's Beast? Beauty and the Beast. Go for it. Okay. How about three new releases? All right. First up, new on Amazon Prime is The Handmaiden, the delightfully entertaining thriller from Park Chan-wook, the director of Old Boy, or at least the version of Old Boy 
that was not made by Spike Lee. Uh, it is a tale of love and deception set in Japanese-occupied Korea. features several terrific twists, so I think I'm not going to describe the plot beyond that at all, other than to say, yes, there is a handmaiden in the film. That is The Handmaiden, available on Amazon Prime. Next up, also on Amazon Prime, is the original version of The Taking of Pelham 123. Even if you've seen the 2009 remake by Tony Scott, you need to see the original, which is vastly superior in terms of authentic New York flavor, great performances from hard-boiled character actors, including Robert Shaw, Martin Balsam, and Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau as a Melanie Linsky-esque unlikely action hero in this film, an MTA cop who becomes the sort of main negotiator with this group of criminals who have hijacked a subway train. It's one of the great crime movies of the 70s, taking of Pelham 123 on Amazon Prime. Finally, on Tubi TV, I have Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, a very charming comedy I used to love as a kid from director Frank Oz. It's a con man movie about this sort of game of one-upsmanship between these two crooks played by Steve Martin and Michael Caine. What a great combo. They are competing to see who can steal this money or get this heiress to give them this ransom of money, $50,000. Very good premise. Smart script. Amazing performances from Steve Martin and Michael Caine. It's a fun one to watch. If you're looking for a light comedy, something to uh, – a little light escapism to take you away, I think this is a perfect choice for something like that. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels on 2B TV. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. First up, we have one here from Steph who writes, Hi, Allison and Matt. I just watched The Truman Show on Netflix. I haven't seen it for a long time and was surprised by how great this film is. It has not just aged well. It is actually a better film now due to how prescient it was about our current society. It explores similar themes to The Matrix and The New Westworld, both of which came out after The Truman Show. The acting is also excellent. And it makes me want to watch more Laura Linney films. I would love to hear you two discuss it. Keep up the great work. The show is consistently wonderful. That was from Steph. The Truman Show on Netflix. That's a movie I have not seen in a long time. But is another one like uh, The Devil in a Blue Dress that has garnered... I mean, I think it was probably better received at the time. But it's just over the years has accrued such a good reputation. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen it for ages. It would be I a good like one to. to do as like a maybe we'll do that as a listener's choice option down the line because I bet there would be a lot to talk about there. It would be a good movie to revisit. Thank you for that recommendation, Steph. Next up, we have a recommendation from J.M. Bossy in Vancouver who writes, as far as I can tell, Jennifer's Body isn't available for streaming commonly, but if it ever is, I think this film definitely deserves recommenda- uh, reconsideration, excuse me, given it's 43% on Rotten Tomatoes. The film stars Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried as two lifelong friends who begin to grow apart after a surreal and horrifying night spent at a pop-punk concert featuring the wonderfully skeezy Adam Brody. Seyfried's needy is dumbstruck by the public's want to sanctify the previously mentioned band, as well as Fox's Fox's Jennifer refusing to acknowledge the tragedies of the night, including her concerning departure. What follows is a relatively typical B-grade slasher you might see on MTV. There's a lot of blood and explicit sexuality and more cheese than most might be comfortable with. But what is most fascinating is undoubtedly the deconstruction of teenage self-importance, finding comedy and horror in the many characters' inability 
to properly value human life. You might even say Jennifer's body approaches slasher fare the same way Mean Girls might have, which especially makes sense when you consider the film was written by Juno Scribe Diablo Cody and was directed by The Invitation's Karen Kusama. Uh, so there you go. That is a recommendation for Jennifer's Body, a movie I never saw, actually. I haven't seen it either. Could be another one for a possible... Either. We should do an all-listener-requested uh, listener's choice. And that wouldn't oh. be a bad idea. So that is Jennifer's Body, which apparently is not wildly available for streaming, but is worth seeking out, according to JM. Thank you, JM. Okay, and one from your my list. You gave me number nine, and my number nine on my my list right now is Michael Bolton's big, sexy Valentine's Day special. The plot description here says, after Santa tells him he needs 75,000 new babies by Christmas to meet toy supply, Michael Bolton... uh, holds a telethon to inspire the world to make love. And it's directed by Scott Ackerman and Akiva Schaefer of, of course, the Lonely Island group. And I think Andy Samberg is involved as well. That's the reason I added it to my my list. Obviously, I added this around Valentine's Day when I saw it pop up there and have not watched it. Have you seen this, Allison? I have not, but I I saw it pop up also. I haven't seen any. I haven't really heard a lot about it. But, you know, as such a fan of the Lonely Island stuff and you know, movies like MacGruber and things like that. I kind of feel like I should at least check it out. It's only like 50 minutes, so I need to make some time to watch this one. Michael Bolton's Big Sexy Valentine's Day special. All right, Allison, you are up. You ready? I am ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up, uh, new to Hulu is season three of Steven Universe. Rebecca Sugar's extremely delightful, uh, I think it's Cartoon Network series, only thing that's annoying about watching binge watching it on Hulu is that then you, since all the episodes are like 15 minutes, 11 minutes long, you know, um, for 15 minute blocks, you end up watching the opening sequence again and again and again in a quick succession. But other than that, I find it really great. It's, uh, it is one of those series, like the best kind of Cartoon Network series, where it looks very simple and then keeps revealing more and more depth and kind of sophistication. So Steven Universe on Hulu, now season three. New to Hulu also is Dancer, a documentary about bad boy of ballet, Sergei Polunin. Uh, mostly I mentioned this because I wanted to say bad boy of ballet out loud. But if you've seen Polunin dance uh, in the music video, Take Me to Church, that David LaChapelle directed, you, like me, may also have interest in this because he is both super talented and super brutally hot. <laughs> uh, new to Netflix is The Salvation. 2004 Danish Western film directed by Dogma95's own Christian Levering. Three words for you, Matt. Mads Mikkelsen, cowboy. Whoa. Yes. And also the movie stars Ava Green as a character who is mute, but who broadcasts with her eyes how much she wants to kill certain people in a way that is very eloquent. Um, That's The Salvation, and it is on Netflix. All right. How about two listener recommendations? I've got one from Jeremy who writes, Hey, y'all, I wanted to recommend a new film from a director that hails from my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. Also the former home of Daniel Scheinert and Adam Wingard. We are on the map, I promise. 
Anyway, that film is a documentary called Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs, directed by Justin Garr, and it's now streaming on Netflix. Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs is a wonderful character-based documentary that tells the story of Cristo Ropolo, a man from Monterey, California, who's been seeing and chasing UFOs since he was a child. In a day and age where it's so hard to relate to people with different beliefs, I'm glad we have docs like this to remind us that we're all human. So thank you for that, Jeremy. That is on Netflix. And also uh, on Netflix is Sebastian's recommendation. He writes, new to Netflix is Abstract, a new documentary series in the spirit of Chef's Table or Jiro's Dream of Sushi, but exploring creativity and the influences on in different design fields, illustration, footwear, architecture, stage, interior design, among others. It is always difficult to express creativity and inspiration in a movie, as you mentioned in the Paul Dano episode, talking about how to make him interesting when writing songs. And in his case, it's all about performance. In this documentary series, all of the subjects are interesting people, and the filmmakers do go to great lengths to make you, as the viewer, understand their process. Uh, so that's abstract on Netflix. Thank you for that, Sebastian. Okay, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list? You only gave me number fifteen. We actually had someone write in recently to complain that we are only doing smaller numbers yeah. now that Netflix does not do a uh, we number your Netflix. And, yes, we did get an and, email uh, like that. To you, person who wrote in, I will say, obviously we can't count longer than that. 15 was already... <laughs> We're like, very bad at math. That's yeah, why we do this for a living, guys. liberal arts majors here. Yeah. Uh, no, and also 15 was like... It. But I mean, part of the reason that we do the, the small numbers is also because it always means that we don't end up picking ones we've already talked about because yeah. new things go on top. So right. anyway, number 15 on my list is King Cobra. King Cobra was a movie last year, uh, based on, uh, the life of <laughs> Brett Corrigan, Brent Corrigan. I like it's, it's about like the murder of a gay porn producer who is played in the, in the film by Christian Slater. Uh, the movie also stars Keegan Allen and James Franco as two aspiring porn producers. Is this movie supposed to be good? I have not heard good things about it. Why is it on my my list? I don't know. Some sense of completism, I guess. An occasion I give in to needing to see whatever James Franco is up to these days. And he was in this movie. Um, so that is King Cobra. It is number 15 on my my list. Okay, let's get to our options for our next listener's choice review. I think we have an interesting bunch this time. Allison, you have the first option, I believe. What I, is it? I do. It is actually a movie that several people have mentioned to us that we should put on. So uh, in honor of Bill Paxton, who passed away recently, we thought we would have as our first listener's choice option, Frailty. Uh, his directorial debut from 2001, which happens to be new to Netflix as well as Shudder. Uh, this co-stars Matthew McConaughey. It's about this strange relationship between these two boys and their father, who is this kind of religious fanatic who believes that God has told him to kill demons who have been disguised as people. And I, this is a movie, this is one of those movies where I feel like the reputation has gotten better and better mm -hmm. over the years. In particular, many people credited Paxton for seeing in McConaughey like what would eventually, you know, become the basis of the reconnaissance, mm -hmm. including uh, his true detective in particular qualities. And I've never seen it. Have you seen it? No. So this would be our opportunity to both see this Bill Paxton directorial effort and to talk about Bill Paxton. I think it would be a we great could do time a whole to do episode. A whole yeah, podcast. I think that would be the plan. Is if you want, some people have suggested, as Allison said, if you want a Bill Paxton episode. 
this would be the one to vote for because we'll do we'll do listener recommendations and everything the whole show will be the whole shebang the whole show will just be about bill paxton so that's your first option it is on netflix and shutter okay option number two is a tv show that played on yahoo and i guess it's still available there now but it is recently has been made available to apparently everyone everywhere in the entire world for free so you don't have to subscribe or pay anything or even live in the U.S. to watch it. It is called Other Space. And this is a, a TV show created by, by Paul Feig, the creator of Freaks and Geeks and the director of many fine films, uh, most recently Ghostbusters, but Bridesmaids and The Heat, and just uh, one of the, the people we really like who makes comedies out in Hollywood. And this was a show that he created for, I think it was called Yahoo Screen, was like a short-lived attempt by Yahoo to become like a... To get into the original content. Yeah, to have their own yeah. original content like so many other streaming sites. And I think their big show was Community. They had whatever season that was of Community, but they had a few other shows, and one of them was Other Space, and they put a fair amount of money behind this, but it never really went anywhere. They made eight, eight episodes. They did a whole season, and I recently heard Paul Feig talking about it on our friend Jordan Hoffman's podcast, Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. That's how he says it. So It's, I, it's the official one. That's how he always says yeah. it, so I'm saying No, it. I'm stressing. So, Engage, the it's official not, Star not Trek podcast. any Star Trek podcast, the um, official one. So I certainly, I also recommend you go and check out that episode of the podcast. It was like a whole episode of Jordan talking with Paul Feig about other space. And I heard about the show when it came out, and I was curious about it, but I just didn't get around to it. It didn't happen. But him, hearing him talk about it and learning that you know anyone could watch it and also that Paul Feig is very happy with how it came out and wants to make more but is having a hard time convincing people, it just seemed like, well, let's check this out. Maybe if we review it. Um, you know, maybe it's another way to get to get it out there, and and it made me very curious, and I just thought it was a good time to do it. So, that's option number two. The website where you can find all of the episodes now is shareotherspace.com. That's where all the episodes are available. So it's only like eight half hours, so it wouldn't be too hard to do the whole the whole season. So that's option two. Other space available online and totally for free for everyone and anyone. Okay, option number three is The Dressmaker. This is on Amazon Prime. This is the 2015 movie written and directed by Jocelyn Morehouse uh, and starring Kate Winslet as a woman who named Tilly Dunnage who comes back to her small Australian town to take care of her mother and also basically take revenge on them by way of high high fashion. Lots of Lots of very couture outfits out in the middle of the kind of rural rural Australian wilderness. All my favorite things. Yes. Morehouse apparently described this as Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven with a sewing machine. Um, man, did some people hate this movie. I, I really enjoyed how much people... Uh, I, one of my coworkers called this the worst movie she has ever seen. I am actually pretty fond of it. Matt, you have not seen it yet. I have not seen it. It reminds me of uh, of kind of like throwback Australian cinema that got imported here, like um, Strictly Ballroom, Muriel's Wedding, that okay. particular tone. Uh, starstruck even and uh, I don't think that a lot of people have that context <laughs> like especially my coworkers who are all young younger um, no idea what I'm talking about when I mention that uh, I think that it yeah it it feels very Australian to me in a way that I enjoyed and I think maybe we'll be a way we could talk about Australian cinema uh, but yes 
curiously, the most divisive choice, I think, on this list <laughs> is a Kate Winslet comedy called The Dressmaker. Oh, man. You can see it on Amazon, mm. and you can vote for it in our listeners' choice Wow. Poll. Well, this is quite an assortment. What movie or TV show should we review on our next episode? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or... Enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, March 20th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV show and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out on or around Tuesday, March 28th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we discuss on each episode. The FilmSpotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.Bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you pick. In the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore. Matt is at Matt Singer. And please do follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. And if you have a chance, give us a like on Facebook. We're at uh, we're facebook.com slash Film Spotting SVU there. Uh, on both of those places, we announce the winner of each listener's choice poll. And we always share more streaming suggestions from me and from you guys, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. He just can't be accorded the same rights and privileges. He won't be accorded them. When he goes to see this woman in a hotel, for instance, she's staying in the white portion of the hotel. He has to be like sneaked in. <laughs> Enthusiastic gesture. How has that never happened in all the years? I don't know. That we've been doing it was this. empty at least. Yeah. Uh, it didn't break. Okay. <laughs>